First, though, we are starting with a story that has been in the news all morning. You've likely heard about the number of cases of COVID-19 that have been reported specifically at Earl Marriott School. My message to parents would would be the same as to staff, which is the protocols matter. Um, And most importantly, we know in one of the factors that Earl Marriott situation was people came to school with symptoms. So when you are symptomatic, please do your daily health check, stay home, get tested, make sure you don't have COVID before you come to school. That was the superintendent in Surrey, Jordan Tinney, speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Matt Westfall, the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Matt, thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, How are things going today? Uh, It's been a rough day for teachers. I was in touch with one teacher at Earl Marriott, and she said there's very high levels of anxiety. They knew there were cases at the school. They didn't know it was quite as many, although it's not a big surprise. And they're reporting there are a lot of students who are not at school today. Parents are saying they're keeping their kids home. Could you send work home? So it's a tough day for them. And when you talk about the fact that the number wasn't really known, that has been one of the issues. And Jordan Tinney has been kind of put out there as as somebody who has been transparent, who has been working very hard to get that information to staff members, uh, to parents. Uh, What would have happened or do you think is the only reason we know about this and the 50 cases of five different classes affected because he sent out that letter? Yes, I I think so, because in terms of the notifications from Fraser Health, they just uh, there were, I think, four notifications of exposure. And then there's class of self-isolating. But the notices don't, it's not like a separate notice for every single case. They don't give any indication of the number. So, no, until yesterday, I I didn't know that there were 50 cases. And I really appreciate the superintendent for, for sending that information out. Uh, the last time we talked to Jordan Tinney on this program a few weeks ago now, he had said that he didn't have the exact number, but he knew that it was more than a dozen uh, staff members and people in admin who had tested positive in Surrey. Do you know, have any, or, or do you know how many teachers have tested positive? I, I don't. Uh, it's higher than that, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, I've spoken to, because there's some people over the break, there's two people I spoke to who just before the break, they tested positive. I don't have a, a current number for that, though. Uh, he also talked a bit about this particular, uh, this number, the 50 plus cases. So he talked about the fact they could link it to the gymnasium in that that was a common area. That's why there were five classes that are impacted. It was likely a scenario when students wouldn't have been wearing masks for some, if not all of the time. Uh, do you, are you confident then that steps are being taken to make those spaces safe? I, I don't know all the steps that are being taken at Earl Marriott and other schools. I will say I'm not entirely confident that right now schools are going to be as safe as they need to be because of the lack of any requirement for people to wear masks. That's that's certainly one thing, and the sheer number of students. Because Earl Marriott is, I think, close to 2,000 students. It's a crowded school in a community where there's a lot of COVID out there. And then the safety measures, we think, are not as good as they need to be to deal with those sorts of conditions. Uh, you mentioned as well uh, a bit of a rough day, uh, to put it mildly, I think, for teachers, uh, for staff, for parents. Uh, how are teachers dealing then with, with vacancy or with, with, pe- with teachers being away? Like you said, if you know of, of teachers that are testing positive, they obviously are going to be off work for at least two weeks. Are there teachers that are then going to come in or are able even to come in and, and be the teacher on call? There will be, although we've been having, there were certainly shortages going into the break because there's a lot of people sick for various reasons. Uh, also, a lot of our teachers teaching on call were actually retired teachers. And a lot of them are saying, you know what, I think I'm going to sit this out right now. Uh, if I don't have to work, I'm, 
they're, they're hesitant to do it. So we have been struggling with a shortage. And, and then what happens with that, I'll just add, is that means other teachers get pulled from their work, such as a learning support teacher or even a counselor or a teacher librarian. They get pulled from their actual job to then cover a class. And how is it, do you think, like you said, too, there are some parents that didn't send their children back to school today. Uh, how big of an impact or do you see that uh, being a, having an impact at this point on, on the number of students who are actually physically in the schools? Uh, it, it's a challenge for, for everyone involved because, of course, parents want to keep their kids safe. A lot of kids feel uh, unsafe coming in. But then also for the teacher, they want to help the students, but then to create then think things to go home when they plan for something that's really meant for in-class instruction is not, is not as easy as it might seem. So we think we need to have better support for students who are going to be learning at home. Uh, Jordan Tinney also talked about this particular cluster, the 50-plus cases, uh, that can be linked not only to that group activity in the gymnasium, but also with some students or some people who came to school, came to the school setting with symptoms of COVID-19. Uh, is that surprising to you? No, it's not. I mean, teachers have, even before COVID, all, quite often they would have children who are sent to school sick. And it could be the parents they have to work. They don't have childcare available, so they're doing the best they can. Uh, but despite the warnings, yeah, we think people are showing up who are, have symptoms. But let's not also forget that COVID can be transmitted even without symptoms. So we think asymptomatic issues, that's something that needs more examination and consideration. What will you be looking for then, as we hear from Dr. Bonnie Henry this afternoon, what would you like to have addressed when it comes specifically to schools and school safety? Uh, I would like to see masks be required. I've not yet heard a good explanation from Dr. Henry about why she comes to a different conclusion on them than her counterparts at the federal level or some other provinces for masks. Uh, you're just saying that students fiddle with masks or there's layers of protection. And respectfully, that's not really a good enough answer. The other thing we would like to see is more transparent reporting of data in BC. BC lags behind all other provinces in terms of how much data in terms of where, what neighborhoods are affected, how many school uh, cases there are. That's something which is actually not reported and really needs to be. Right. And, and make, you made that point even right off the, the beginning. And others have made that point, too, that had Jordan Tinney not released this letter, we still might we still wouldn't know these numbers. Well, yeah, it, it's really critical to have that everyone has confidence in the safety of the schools. And greater transparency is really the only way we can have confidence that the information, good or bad, is out there so we can make informed decisions. All right, Matt, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for taking some time with us, though. Uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And happy New Year. Well, you might have seen this story or heard this story and found yourself shaking your head thinking, how would somebody not get the message that holding a New Year's Eve party would not have been a good idea? Well, we heard from Vancouver Police. Uh, they confirmed the identity of the restaurant in downtown Vancouver uh, called the Cold Tea Restaurant and that they were there around 11 o'clock on December 31st after a public complaint and they found people in there having a private party. Now, we are going to hear from one of the owners of Cold Tea Restaurant a little bit later in the program. He is speaking with our John Jang and saying that 
His version of what happened, what he says was going on in the restaurant, is different from what we heard from the Vancouver police. But even that version still includes various violations of the current rules that are in place. And what does this mean for the restaurant industry in general? Let's bring on Ian Tostenson, president and CEO of the BC Food and Restaurant Association. Thank you so much for being with us again. You're welcome, Jill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you uh, as well. Uh, A bit of a, a double blow there in that we had those regulations announced last minute. Uh, restaurants were scrambling to still make things work. And then we hear of the of at least this one case uh, of a restaurant that went ahead and had a party anyway. Uh, your response? That's what makes it so hard is I know that this industry was, you know, they were not happy about the orders on, uh, the, on New Year's Eve, Eve that they had to close at eight, or close liquor sales at 8 o'clock. But nevertheless, um, like they've been doing for the last 10 months, they sucked it up and they did what was right and there were restaurants in downtown vancouver that lost hundreds of thousands of dollars groups of restaurants because they stopped serving liquor at eight o'clock um liquors are off the table by nine and the restaurants were closed by 10 so it's disappointing to see somebody uh for whatever the reasons were to stay open and to be in complete violation on all fronts you know whether it was a it sounded like a private party i wasn't there by the way mm-hmm. but you know there was a liquor and it wasn't in the spirit of what this industry has been so and I, it has been so good and, and and creating confidence in Dr. Henry and confidence in the public to sort of go, well, gee, that was sort of kind of easy. They just kind of had a restaurant that had a party. Um, so from our point of view, uh, it's disappointing, it's dangerous, and we've got to make sure that we try to minimize this in the future. Uh, and again, we are going to hear from one of the owners of Cold Tea Restaurant a bit later on in this program, but we have already heard through email from them. They've responded saying that the police uh, rendition of what happened was a bit overblown, saying it wasn't 100 people. It was far less than that. And unfortunately, when the police came in, there were 38 people uh, sitting at socially distanced tables and the, the party was, was leaving and the gathering was breaking up at that point. Uh, to your point, though, that was 11 o'clock at night. Uh, every other restaurant that complied with the rules had to have their patrons out by 10 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might just have been the cost of doing business. My guess is they still made a lot more than the $2,300 fine they were given. So are the fines not enough? I don't think the fines are enough. I mean, I, I did say, you know, uh, it should be $100,000 and $2,300 per patron. I mean, we've got to get serious about this. Um, some of the blowback I got personally in this was like, seriously, like you're worried about this kind of stuff. And some people were saying, yeah, well, the police just came in and wrecked our fun. And so there's some people who just don't get it or don't want to buy into the fact that we've got to. You know, the, the critical time for our industry right now is between now and about four months. We've got a window here. And we've got to continue to do things so well because we're the, one of the only provinces, uh, and I'm going to call it a privilege now, that have the privilege of staying open for in-store dining. And, you know, if we close that or we're forced to close that because of bad uh, bad actions on our part, then, you know, one restaurant person was telling me this morning, you know, he'd have to rehire all his staff, uh, retrain all his staff, maybe 20 or 40 people he'd have to hire at about $1,500 a person. It gets very costly to do that. So that's why we've been so diligent about doing this right and, and, and so strong-headed about taking, you know, a line in the sand with this kind of stuff because can't do it. I mean, this is a pandemic. This is not like you know, gee, a liquor violation in normal times where I was, you know, I serve liquor for half an hour too late. This is a health issue. And in our industry has agreed, however tough it is to put health in the public interest first. That's why it's, you know, 
the, are the fines adequate? Um, the fines, I think the patrons, personally, I think the patrons should be charged. So how uh, frustrating think, is it for you that police didn't charge or didn't uh, issue tickets to the patrons? I don't know. If they, I, well, I think they can. Um, it's probably hard for them. I, in, you know, I'm sure the police, it's a daunting situation. They're trying to get everybody to line up and get their names and stuff um, versus just, just getting rid of them. And, you know, insofar as the business, um, you know, it should be a suspension of something, a liquor license, the business license and or a fine that sends a message to the rest of industry is that, you know, I know it's hard for these guys because they didn't get a lot of federal support on any programs and they started late in the newcomers. And that's the gap in the system is that they're not able to access any support programs and I feel for them. But nevertheless, the rules, as someone said to me today, Ian, the rules are the rules and we got to stick with it because I can't afford to have my business go down if we get uh, we get lax and we get too accommodating for, for these kinds of situations. Uh, we're talking about this one because it was busted by police and police issued that information. Have you been hearing anecdotally or have you heard of any other restaurants that had parties or that broke the rules? <laughs> no, not I haven't. Um, <clears throat> but I heard a few places like um, I heard that um, one of the things that we feared would probably happen is at Worcester, for example, apparently there was a uh, little boutique hotel that had you know, all suddenly all sorts of reservations for about 60 rooms uh, so people could have a place to go after restaurants closed. So we were always concerned about that, is that we felt that restaurants being open is a more controlled environment, and we legally have to control that environment versus closing and letting them loose. But I think that Dr. Henry was, was kind of concerned that these things were going to happen. We weren't happy that she did it so late in the game. She could have, she needs to, and I hope she does enlist our industry, our working group of 70 restaurants to, to talk to us because we could have, we could have been a lot more effective as an industry in, you know, in, in monitoring what was going on in making sure that um, we were consistent. We didn't overpurchase the products that we didn't sell, you know, that the staff are taking care of. Um, but obviously something triggered Dr. Henry that she was, she was hearing and seeing something that alarmed her. But we, um, there's an opportunity for us to, to be a lot more sort of no, giving a lot more notice on these things. And the public will buy it. I mean, if we had to cancel New Year's Eve because it was a health app, we wouldn't like it, but we would do it. But doing it sort of the day before was a bit tough. Yeah, the transparency, uh, certainly, I think people uh, are calling for more of that. Uh, Ian Tostenson, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again, as always, for coming on the show. Thanks, Jill. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being with us. Coming up in this half hour, we're going to talk a little bit more. If you have getting back in shape, getting regular exercise into your routine on your things to do list, but maybe you've had a little trouble actually making that happen, fear not. We have an expert coming on later on this half hour to offer up a few tips as to how to make that happen, especially given the restrictions and the limitations when it comes to things like group exercise. So we wanted to also talk though about what this year might look like in every different aspect, not just the pandemic. So why not speak with a futurist speaker, consultant, and executive advisor? Well, that's what Nick Badminton is, and he is with us on the line now. Nick, great to have you back on the show. It's good to be here, Joe. Uh, let's talk, uh, we'll go through a few of the areas I think that people are, are interested in and wondering what things are going to look like this year. Uh, work certainly looks different, and my guess is it will continue to, to look a little different. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to go through some kind of a cultural, social, technological renaissance this year, and work's going to be one of the places where that really comes to um, comes to fruition. So we're going to see a new kind of efficiency. You know, we're going to stop being measured on the amount of hours that we do, but what we produce and and the quality of that, because people are really capable. So I think there's time for organizations to really put some faith into that. But also, I think when we do get back to, to the offices opening up sort of in, in the middle of the year, I do think that we're going to end up in, in a new kind of rhythm. I think that there's going to be some time spent at work, being collaborative, uh, coming up with good solutions and working together. And some people are going to be working at home. And obviously, I'm talking about white-collar workers here. Uh, we're still going to need uh, people to, uh, to be supported uh, in our restaurant industry and our essential services as well. So, yeah, it, it's going to be an interesting mix of, of getting back to, to business and being very, very careful because it's still going to be uh, hanging around in terms of the pandemic. But efficiency and, and really giving people uh, the, the power that they have within themselves to say, hey, you know what, I've done a great job. Can't you see that? And, you know, stop measuring me in, in lots of different ways that, 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 that came from the old world of efficiency and spending the hours at work. Uh, do you think we'll, we'll see that shift as well? Or I'm sure we're seeing it in some areas, but uh, there has been a, a reluctancy in the past, I think, whether it's employers thinking that they're, that workers are going to slack off if they're not in the office or, or they can't tell uh, exactly that they're spending the hours working. Are we going to take that kind of leap to where there is that faith and there is that agreement between people who aren't on site that, yeah, you're going to still get your work done? You know what? If if managers are, are having a lack of faith within uh, their their teams, I think that they need to take a long hard look at themselves and <laughs> what they want to see, and they need to really trust on in the teams that they built. I mean, really, you know, this is going to really shake work culture to the core. Uh, and you know, for years I've worked with people that managed to do um, you know 120 hours a week to do incredible media projects through to those that have been able to achieve incredible things in 15 hours one week, 60 hours another week, 40 hours another week. You know, people are going to work in a different ebb and flow. And managers and organizations, they need to step up, they need to be flexible, and they really need to trust the people on the ground because that's been lacking over the last few decades. Where do you see things going with schooling? Because that's certainly one of the big questions right now on finding this balance between in-class learning, distance learning. What do you see there? Yeah, I, I think we've seen a mass failure of schooling being able to be put online. I do think that there needs to be modernization. I do need. I do think that people need to re- revolutionize the curriculum so that children are taught, you know, practical modern day skills like design, entrepreneurship, data and computer skills, uh, alongside the, the math, the arithmetic, and and English and and, uh, and other language skills as well. I do think that there's going to be hybrid schooling where there's going to be kids in in the schools and they're going to be doing learning online i think that's going to stick with us and i think there's going to be a lot of work done there i certainly hope so but i also think that uh, parents are going to bandy together and they're going to uh, approach something that i call micro schooling where they're going to get groups of their kids together they're going to find teachers that don't want to work part of the school system to teach those children in small groups and i think that that's going to be a boom industry in the next 10 years Uh, that would certainly shift things uh, and take it in a different direction 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's needed. Uh, there's an amazing quote, which is, you could take a teacher from the 1800s and put them in a classroom today, and it's going to feel very similar. There just has not been the revolution that's needed in education, and it's time for you know, the government and the education system to step up and say, hey, okay, maybe we can do this a little bit better, and maybe we can equip our children to, to be better served in, in the education system. Uh, travel... Being social, how do you see that playing out? Well, this has been the thing that we've missed the most. I mean, there are still people hopping on planes and going to places like Mexico and and all sorts of of places around the world, and they're not being very safe. So people are going to have to work out what protocols work, you know, the, the boundaries of what's acceptable. I do think that in 2021 that we're going to see sort of July the 1st, Canada Day as being that ignition point of like, let's get out. Let's get back together. But, you know, let's be safe. This pandemic's going to hang around. Um, so I think that, you know, distancing masks or whatever. I also think that there's going to have to be some leniency from government in understanding that there are responsible households that can get together in ways. And hopefully fast testing and all those kinds of protocols can mean that we can get back to some semblance of normality and globally start traveling between countries where there's vaccinations in place, there are protocols in place, and where we can still go out and we can mix in the world and provide you know, amazing experiences for everyone. Yeah, I think we're already starting to see a little bit of that. Even yesterday when the sun came out in Vancouver, uh, briefly, it was as though everybody got the same text and flooded to parks and outdoors. And we're just so grateful to be out. But that also led to scenarios of maybe not enough distancing and those uh, those scenarios that we've been told to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, we can't just assume that the people that are getting together and maybe not wearing masks and whatever have been hugely irresponsible. There have been those people. So that's why we have to sort of, you know, look across everything and really try and work out how we're going to balance that going forward. You know, the, the word of the year for me in uh, in 2021 is about protocol. The second word is about vaccination. The third word is about government stepping up and being really trusting in what Canadians can do and be in this world of a pandemic and post-pandemic as well. Uh, do you think we have learned from this or there is still that opportunity to learn and going forward perhaps being better prepared? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, as, as a futurist, I've worked with many organizations and governments and, and um, many of my fellow futurists have been out there and they've been doing these scenario planning for pandemics for years and years and years. And no one really paid attention. But, you know, this is just training wheels for pandemics that could come down the line. I think there could be worse pandemics that are going to come. And really what we have to understand is we have to have that balance between leadership, policy, civic action. And that's been really lacking. You know, there's still discussions about masking policy and social distancing policy and lockdowns. All of this should have been sorted out on day one. Places like Taiwan haven't had cases for over 230 days, and that's because they got it right, and they really worked it out. And really, the, the key glue to that, that whole uh, movement of keeping everyone safe has been, you know, everyone within that country. So all Canadians, if they can follow policy, if government can, do, can write smart policy and have smart action, I think that we're going to be able to weather any pandemic that comes down the road. All right. Uh, Interesting uh, to get that uh, little glimpse into the possible future. Uh, Nick Badminton, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Be safe. Well, I wonder if anyone else did a scientific experiment like I did during the holidays. That is, what happens if you eat and drink with no accountability and you don't do a lick of exercise for a couple of weeks? Well, 
My findings were you gain a bit of weight and you don't feel great about yourself, but then you want to start exercising again. How do you do that? Well, my next guest is here to offer some tips on how to do that and not fail. Scott Lear is the Pfizer Heart and Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention Research at St. Paul's Hospital. Dr. Lear, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks a lot, Jill. I don't think I'm alone in uh, letting uh, the exercise kind of fall uh, to uh, fall away during the holidays and eating and drinking a bit too much. How do you or what advice do you give to people then when here we are in January and you want to start bringing that exercise back into your routine? Well, well, first off, you're, you're not alone, uh, of course, and, and I had even done the same thing. And, and sometimes if you've been exercising and being active before, and it's something like the holidays, it's kind of like going on a, a health holiday in the sense once you get back to, to your routine, it's probably not as uh, big of an issue. You don't have the the distractions of holidays to, to attend to. But um, for a lot of people, they might be looking to start or, or doing more. And a few things that we have to take stock on are looking at where we spend our time, doing some planning, essentially. Where do we spend our time? The reality is, if you're going to fit in exercise, it's got to take time from somewhere. Now, it doesn't have to mean that it takes time away from something else that's a priority, but it, how much time are we watching TV? How much time are we spending on our phones? Uh, can we walk to the store instead of driving where we do two things at once? So those would be some of the first steps is to take a look at, for each of us, where we're spending our, our, our time on and see where we can fit it in. And, and so once you've done that, if you've figured out, okay, I've got maybe an hour on Mondays, I've got this on Wednesdays, how do you kind of get the motivation, especially when right now with the pandemic, we're dealing with the restrictions in that you can't just go to a, a group fitness class, you've got to kind of figure that out on your own. Yeah, and, you know, every time starting activity is a challenge, and as you pointed out, the, where we're at right now with the pandemic, it's even more more of a challenge. So uh, also I'd like to, to say, you know, be kind to yourself. If we get frustrated when trying something and we're not succeeding the way we want, that can actually lead to us quitting. So be kind. And if you miss one or two sessions, it's not going to undo uh, or drastically affect, negatively affect the goals that you do have from, from exercising. So there's, there's definitely things that people can do. It might be a shift in activities. Walking is always the most popular. Uh, I know now with the rain and the darker um, evenings, it can be less motivating. But you can still go out and walk. And, and while motivation is important, that's usually what gets us started. It's rarely what gets, keeps us going. We might have that something to motivate us, like maybe feeling good about ourselves, health reasons, or, or whatnot, uh, maybe running a, a certain time around uh, our neighborhood. But it's really discipline that keeps us going. There's lots of times when, when I'm, most times before I'm going out for an exercise session, I wouldn't say I'm motivated at all, yeah. especially this time of year. Yeah. But I just say to myself, okay, I know I'll feel so much better afterwards. And when you book that time in, that's where the discipline comes in. Other things, like you mentioned with the, the challenges, uh, there's walking, there's home videos through YouTube, there's online classes people can do. You can still do s some activities, cycling, running uh, as well. Uh, swimming pools are open too. 
And what about the idea of starting small? Because I think that that's something I have fallen into in, I, I, I did this last year. I thought I'm going to run a marathon this year, but I, I went about it all wrong and started off too big and it kind of fizzled out. There was injury involved. So what do you, what do you suggest about starting small? Well, definitely suggest that. A lot of us, were, we're big dreamers. We, we think of big goals, and it's either kind of like go big or go home, but that doesn't work out in reality. And, and what you really want to do, what people want, want to work towards is making a sustainable habit. So you start with the habit. So when I say a habit, it's focusing more on the process. So let's say if going walking five times a week is your goal and maybe, you know, working up to half an hour uh, each time you go walking, start with it's the process of even if you go five or ten minutes, you're, you're starting to build that habit. That's better than saying, oh, I don't have time for 30 minutes, so I'm not going to do any of it. You want to start doing that habit, and then you can build, build from there. A lot of times we can't control the, the outcomes, as, as you, you'd mentioned, in terms of what happened with the marathon. Um, you, you know, anytime we're looking at a performance type of outcome, we're not always fully in control of that, but we can control the process. And that's where it helps to focus on that, build that habit. And it becomes a more positive uh, endeavor. And how important is it, do you think, that people really take the time to figure out what they like to do in that? Uh, I mean, I enjoy running, uh, but I know a lot of people hate running. Uh, I don't. Uh, how important is it that you pick an activity that you actually you don't dread doing it? Oh, extremely important. Whenever people ask me what's the best type of exercise, I know they're thinking about things like, oh, I could say swimming because it involves multiple muscles or cross-country skiing or running or rowing or things like that. But the best exercise for any individual is the one that they enjoy doing. And if they enjoy it, they'll still keep doing it. And it doesn't have to, exercise doesn't necessarily have to be the focus. Like it could be getting together, going for a walk with a friend. It could be the fact that if you're commuting to work, you know, riding your bike or going running to and from work. So that's also, that's exercise. But there you've tied it into something a bit more than just the fact of of getting out there going for a run. All right. Uh, Very uh, good advice and uh, motivation on how to succeed, uh, bringing that exercise back into the routine. Uh, We'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thanks a lot, Joe. Well, there has been a lot of attention paid to a story that came to light after Vancouver police talked about the fact that they broke up a party that was being held on New Year's Eve, a party that took place at the Cold Tea Restaurant in Vancouver. Uh, The owner of the restaurant, one of the owners, saying uh, that the story that's out there, in his opinion, as somebody who was there, somebody who owns the restaurant, isn't actually 100% accurate. Now, we stand behind the article that was written online. Global BC has reported on this particular story, as have many other media outlets. But earlier today, our show contributor, John Jang, met up with Ron Chang, who is one of the owners of Cold Tea Restaurant, and had a conversation with him about what happened on New Year's Eve, why the restaurant broke the rules and his response to the coverage, as well as the response from others also. Take a listen to the conversation. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. We are now joined by Ron Chang. He's one of the owners of the Cold Tea Restaurant in Vancouver that's been in the news for hosting that New Year's Eve dinner that was shut down by Vancouver police. And Ron, I do appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thank you, John. Um, I appreciate you 
giving me the opportunity to speak and to share our story um, and give our perspective on the events that occurred uh, on New Year's Eve. Well, I believe there is two sides to a story. We've heard the VPD statement on what happened that night. So here, I'd like to give you an opportunity to take us through exactly what happened in your perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, firstly, um, the accounts of it being 100 people in here is completely false. There were exactly 38 people that were sitting for a dinner for New Year's Eve. Um, I mean, perception is reality. When the police arrived, everybody was getting up to take a picture. And I get where the perception of that would be. But when the police did arrive, there were two of them. They didn't do a head count. Um, they just ushered everybody out and proceeded to ticket me um, and the restaurant. So there, there was no clarification of, um, of why they said 100. Um, I think the, the fact that it was portrayed to the media like we were holding a ticketed event where it was a dance party or something like that is completely false. We had 38 people in for a dinner. Um, unfortunately, with the, the fact that the, the new health orders came out less than 20 hours ago, uh, before before the scheduled dinner, we, we were kind of put in a really tough situation. Um, we didn't we didn't really know what to do because we've already purchased all the alcohol, we've purchased all the food, and we've been preparing the food, and all of that would have gone to waste. Uh, we can't go back to the liquor store and get a refund um, on on our alcohol, so it would be dead stock just sitting on our bar. And to put it in perspective, we haven't gotten any help from any level of government so far from the city to the province to uh, the federal government. All of the programs that are meant to help small businesses, we don't qualify for. And believe me, we, like, we've tried. We've tried everything that we possibly could to qualify for these, but the stipulations don't go towards our favor. So I'll give you an example of the city. Um, for the, the fact that every other restaurant was able to get a patio license quickly and easily, uh, and, and the fact that we weren't able to until maybe a month uh, before summer was ending, um, that kind of puts into perspective uh, how we've been treated so far. Uh, from the like provincial government standpoint, um, all the, the BC grants, we don't qualify for that. You know, we haven't been operating for 18 months. We, we just started operating um, in, uh, in May. Uh, from the federal standpoint, we don't qualify for the SIBA loans. We don't qualify for the wage subsidy. We don't qualify for any rent relief because we don't have historical data of us showing a decline in revenue or um, a history of a payroll. So all of that combined, we've been trying to manage as best as we could. With the new health order that came out less than 24 hours notice, we, we weren't going to be able to make rent. Plain and simple. I had a choice to make. We all had a choice to make whether you know, we were going to fold and, and go bankrupt or push our luck with a dinner. Um, I take responsibility for it, for sure. Um, I mean, it's not something that we're proud of, but the, the story that's out there right now has been quite damaging to, uh, to the restaurant. You know, from hateful, violent, and racist undertones comments uh, in our social media platforms that we've now since have to turn off um, from phone calls and emails with the same undertones um, 
our, our property has been damaged now as well because of this. But people don't understand or hear our side of the story. When, when Global put that news article out and published that article, they, they didn't get our side of the story. It was the weekend. So we were seeking counsel. As a small business, we didn't know what the best course of action was. So we were seeking counsel. And because it was the weekend, we couldn't necessarily get the counsel in time. Yet they published the article already. Uh, they have since put a statement in there, uh, a small little statement that we quickly issued to them last night. But I feel like the damage is already done. Yeah. I fear for the safety of all my employees. So today I've had to stop dine-in service. And I, I'm, I'm just fearful of not just the property, but of the safety of my staff. You mentioned your business has been damaged since the uh, New Year's Eve dinner. Could you elaborate on what that means exactly? Um, so as soon as we locked the doors uh, last night, um, people started to egg our front door and all our windows. Um, and we had to come in this morning to uh, clean everything up. There's graffiti outside now as well. Um, it's, uh, it's disheartening to see because people just jump to a conclusion and, and read the headline of what that article was and not the full entirety and the, and the body of text. Um, I think what is also most disheartening, uh, not the vandalism itself, but of that particular article and of, of what was said in it by, uh, by the presidents of the BC Restaurant Association, it, that was damaging as well because he didn't reach out to us. He didn't ask us what the actual facts were. And the, the fact that he made those statements, I felt like that was also quite reckless, that he put not just our business in jeopardy, but the safety of everybody that works in here. Ian Tostenson was on the show earlier this afternoon, and again, he did reiterate how reckless this alleged party was to the industry. But I'll say, you know, whether it was 38 or 100, I think people would be concerned that you had a reservation of this size because it does violate the public health orders. And the public has been asked to visit restaurants with people only in your immediate household. So the fact there was such a large group, I think, was shocking to some people more than anything. Well, I mean, if you come into the restaurant and you count the exact number of seats that we have here, it's... 62. They have exactly 62 seats available in the restaurant for dining service. So the fact that they quoted uh, 100 is, is quite damaging. It would be physically cannot hold 100 people in here. So the fact that it, it, was, it was 38, and I'll put, I'll put this into perspective. We didn't take this reservation last minute. You know, this, this has been in the works for three months. And orders change constantly. Um, and we do our best and our due diligence to keep up with all the new regulations and the new orders that, that do pop up. We, we messaged uh, the organizer and uh, the, the group and, and let them know, like, hey, these are the new orders. Um, you know, we will still have you at 7 o'clock, uh, but these are the new orders. You know, if things got out of hand, and I take full responsibility for that. You know, it, I think we were in over our heads at that point. But we also, from a business standpoint, we didn't know what to do. Uh, we, we had no support from anybody. And when the cops did end up arriving, they, they didn't talk to any of the guests. They didn't talk to anybody that was in here. They just ushered everybody out and proceeded to give us a fine. 
Regarding the group eventually taking photos together, which is when the uh, police showed up, uh, they did it without masks on. Were attempts made by your staff to remind them that if they wanted to take photos, they'd have to go outside or socially distance themselves or at the very least put on masks? Yes. Yes, they were. Um, but at the same time, there's only so much that we can do as an operator and as, as staff members. Uh, there's also... The, the fact that you know the the public also needs to obey these rules, and we did our did our best to try to, but but at the end of the day, we're not here to police it either. We we did our due diligence. We have signs up everywhere. We have sanitizers. We take temperature checks. All of that. We follow every single protocol. And you know, unfortunately, like I said, perception is reality. When they see that happen, that's what they deem to be true. He is Ron Chang. He's one of the co-owners of the Colty Restaurant. Ron, really appreciate your time here today. Thank you, John. Appreciate the time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.